I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Most of us know about Henry VIII, Napoleon and Churchill, but what about history's less heralded heroes? In his new book, Lessons from History, political commentator and self-declared amateur historian Alex Dean shines a light on the less-known characters who have helped shape our world. From sharpshooting barons to self-medicating surgeons to the Lion of Africa and a bear who nearly caused the nuclear war. This is history in all its technicolour glory with an unforgettable cast of characters. It was a great pleasure to sit down with Alex earlier this week and chat through some of his favourite stories from the book. And I really would encourage you to go out and snap up a copy. So, Alex, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Your book, Lessons from History, is out now in all good bookshops. Um, now, it's a book about history, but it, the genesis of the book was really about as modern as you can imagine. Could you just explain kind of how it came into being? Oh, and thank you very much for having me, John. Um, this really started as a distraction during lockdown. I started telling some anecdotes, uh, short anecdotes from, from history on social media, on Twitter. And um, they started very quickly uh, to get what was, for me at least, you know, a great number of hits, you know, retweets, um, positive comments, likes. And um, within a dozen uh, of such Twitter threads, I had a book deal. So, I mean, it's very strange for me that that's something that began as a complete lark during lockdown and as a distraction um, has led to this very professional book. I mean, the publisher being much more professional than me has led to this very um, uh, attractively presented and, and well put together book uh, that I had no idea was coming. It's a great surprise to come out of lockdown uh, for me, to be honest, and a really pleasant one. And I, I must immediately say that I am not an historian. You know, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiastic amateur, uh, which is a typically British, English eccentric thing to do. Uh, but um, I'm so by no means is it my background, but I've certainly enjoyed doing it. And I, and I love history very much. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stories, particularly about military stuff and the Navy in World War Two. Was that a particular interest of yours going into it? Or did you just happen to find that those that area, you know, was a, a fruitful one for the kind of stories you wanted to tell? Um, I, I certainly um, like those kinds of stories. And like a, a lot of boys, at least when I was growing up, our military history was something that I um, really enjoyed. But I think, too, that um, in part, it's 
in response to the audience that I had attracted online. I mean, these stories, as I say, these are strange for me to have enjoyed the success, but literally millions of views and, uh, and hundreds of thousands of engagements in different ways. And um, a, a large number of them were suggesting stories. And of those, some of them were in that kind of naval and, and military category that you uh, you touch upon. I mean, there's a clutch of, of things that aren't in, in that world too, of course. I, I tell a story about the Belgian prime minister who when confronted and asked um, to sing uh, the, the Belgian national anthem in French, uh, saying Le Marseillaise, nothing to do with uh, military, but quite, quite amusing. I told the story of the, the first African um, bishop in the Church of England who was freed uh, from slavery by the British Navy. Uh, and then his descendant, um, who was a, a doctor in Nigeria who stopped an outbreak of Ebola. Now, lots of stories are not um, about the military. And, you know, I've got a couple of, um, of sporting stories in there as well. But I cannot deny uh, that, you know, as the kind of thrust of the, the book is about, you know, um, resilience and individual daring do and interesting stories, uh, the military has been a, and, and war has been a, a very uh, fruitful uh, scene to mine. Yeah, I should just stress to our listeners, it's it's really not just a collection of, of war stories. I've actually categorised the various stories myself into ah. brave and daring, wacky, uh, important, um, which we'll come on to later, because there are some very important, historically crucial stories in here, uh, political, um, including things like Reagan versus the unions, Thatcher, LBJ's quips. And then my final one is I put touching or stirring. And there's a lot of these stories that that are really quite kind of emotive. Um, one of the things that really strikes me from this, as well as all the daring do that you mentioned, is that actually, you know, sometimes pen pushers get a bit of stick, but you show that sometimes um, it's bureaucrats who can do the most good. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that is, I hope, completely true. I told the story um, in here of a Portuguese bureaucrat, which uh, people probably weren't expecting to find in a uh, a book about um, history. And um, he, his name was Sousa Mendes. Uh, uh, and he um, was the Portuguese consul uh, general in Bordeaux. And um, the Portuguese, uh, who were of course neutral during the Second World War, were very alarmed by the, the, the rise of the Axis powers, especially given the, the closeness of the, the Spanish to them and their own um, geographical, geopolitical situation. And so um, seeking not to anger um, the Axis powers uh, and to demonstrate their neutrality. Uh, the Portuguese had um, issued an order which set out why, set, yeah, Consul Circular 14, it set out who constituted inconvenient or dangerous refugees. And so that, that means who shouldn't be granted a visa without approval from Lisbon. And given the pressure of speed, time and the volume concern, that basically meant that they were going to uh, reject people who were fleeing Germany because they were Jewish. And um, Sousa Mendes um, basically disobeyed that instruction immediately and started issuing um, visas actively, um, even then started issuing forged papers. And as the German tanks rolled westwards, and especially after Patin um, announced that the French were going to have an armistice with Germany, Sousa Mendes just started issuing visas to everybody. Um, and then Bordeaux was bombed uh, the very next day and he um, he was recalled, uh, but he missed the recall notice because he'd already set out for the border. Uh, and he was finally he finally received the order to stand down because when he got to Bayonne, 
he'd started issuing visas left, right and centre um, to, to people in that border town. Um, so he did return to um, Lisbon, but he did so rather slowly. He drove via postings and, and isolated areas that hadn't yet received the orders from Lisbon to basically stop admitting um, refugees. And he would uh, prove people wherever he went. He would uh, drive up to the visa crossing and wave across uh, refugees. Uh, the point is, when he got home, he was punished. Uh, his pay was docked. His career was effectively ended. His family was shunned in Portuguese society. Now, after the war, the Salazar regime claimed credit for the refugees that they had taken. And, you know, there is some truth to, to that. And one can completely understand why they did it. But you rather think there's more recognition that it belonged to an individual civil servant um, doing his uh, his bit. And um, in Israel, they have the um, uh, you can be determined to be a right one of the righteous amongst the nations and honoured um, for, for someone who is not Jewish, who helped the Jews during um, the Holocaust. And he is one um, such person. Uh, the lesson from that is, I think, you know, um, sometimes you're going to be punished for doing that which is right. And you should definitely still do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, there are lots of tales of kind of moral courage here. And we, unfortunately, you know, we don't have time to do every single one. Another one that really struck me was Sylvia Foti, whose who's granddad is kind of folk hero in Lithuania. Ooh. And she basically kind of outed him as a collaborator um, yeah. with the Nazis. But I just want to say, talk about one of the ones that shows great physical courage, but also I think reminds you that if you think you're having a, you know, a tough time, just bear in mind the story of, um, it's a guy called Leonid Ragozin. Who Ragozov, was, uh, yeah. yeah. He, was the he was the doctor on the sixth Soviet Antarctic uh, mission. And uh, he, so they'd landed, they'd been put, put off by a boat, set up their camp, winter set in, bad time to be in the Antarctic. And as the, uh, the blizzards um, raged around them, he started to feel sick. And he, um, there's this medical term that you always come across if you uh, particularized, his illness particularized into his stomach and he realized, in his guts, and he realized that it was his appendix. And uh, this is bad news if you're the doctor uh, on the base. And he realized that he was going to have to remove his own appendix. And um, easy to say, rather hard to do, especially if you're very feverish, and especially if you can't give yourself real anesthetic because you need to have as clear a head as you can have in that condition to, to operate. So he cut into himself, and I think we'll all forgive someone who's at the height of fever and has got an appendix ready to burst for making a mistake. He did. He cut into his own intestines and had to pause the operation, sew his intestines back up, and then carry on. And he, he removed, ultimately, he had to rest many times because he was exhausted. His, his colleagues were standing next to him, aghast, ready to deliver an adrenaline shot in case he passed out so he could carry on the operation. Um, rather touchingly, he records his concern for their well-being as he was doing it. And, um, and he finally removes this blackened appendix uh, and um, sewed himself back up, carried on uh, as the doctor with the mission and went back to Moscow, not making any fuss himself and was a doctor to the end of his days. And as you rightly say, I do sometimes we're all we've been feeling sorry for ourselves as we've gone through lockdown and restrictions during coronavirus. And I, I think to Rogotsov's story and I think to myself, you know, it's not so bad, really. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's something I draw from a great number of these stories, not just the ones from, you know, the 16th century or Roman era or anything. It's just how lucky we are, you know, to live uh, in the era that we do. I wonder as well, I think that 
if children were to learn history in a, a form somewhat like this, then perhaps um, it, there might be more enthusiasm for it. I mean, what, did it make you reflect on the way that history is taught uh, um, in this country? Well, so, somewhat. I mean, let me first of all pay tribute to those who've devoted their lives to teaching history. I greatly admire it, and certainly, you know, they're professionals, and I'm an amateur, and I'm I'm the, the son of teachers, so I greatly admire the profession. I don't mean any criticism of it by saying that a large number of responses, as I was telling the stories online, and now a new wave of responses as the book has been published, have been people saying, if I'd been taught history like this, I would have taken it for A-level instead of dropping it. If I'd been taught history like this, I would have enjoyed it at GCSE rather than hating it. If my kids were taught history like this, they would um, be enthusiastic about it rather than bored. And, and it, I think in part that's because we love history because um, we love telling stories. And I think that's how history begins, uh, or love of history begins. And if you don't have that, uh, then you're less likely to find that people, especially children, are engaged in it. But the second thing, um, I think, I hope it doesn't sound too much like I'm banging a drum, but I think that there's this kind of woke uh, agenda now, not necessarily so much amongst professional teachers, but amongst people who you know, go through history as offence archaeologists, trying to find people to be upset about and to have tear a statue down about and so forth. And if you approach history like that as an exercise in political correctness, as an exercise in demonstrating your own virtue and self-worth uh, and finding everything that's wrong about people from the past, not only do you think, uh, do you, I think, unfairly denigrate people um, in the past who should be judged by the standards of their day, but you also make it really boring and pious and, and make it an, a discipline that people are less likely to think to themselves, that's something that I'm interested in. Yeah, and I think one of the things that um, comes across really strongly in a lot of your stories is that the world is not this Manichaean division between good, evil, black and white. You know, even someone, for example, Lord Hawhaw, one of yeah. the World War II's great villains, possibly demonstrated enormous moral courage at the end of his life. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting story. And I want to make sure I'm going to open my copy and make sure that I give my um, tribute to the right historian, because it, I, I told the story, but I built upon um, the work of, um, uh, of others in doing so. The first part is quite obviously well known that Haw Haw was um, the voice of the Nazis in um, the Second World War from the UK. From, he was British and he went to, or he wasn't, depending on who you believe at his trial, uh, but he went to um, Germany and broadcast Nazi propaganda. And he was absolutely in it up to his neck and he was rightly, in my view, executed uh, for treason. Uh, the, there's one thing I tell in the story that is often lost is that people think that because they've seen, you know, downfall and time in the bunker and so forth, that was the end of the Reich. Actually, it wasn't. The, the rump German... Um, Reich retreated into its final capital in the end of Flensburg, uh, right up in the north by the German border with Denmark. And um, we had some units mopping up the last of the Nazis uh, from Dönitz's um, post-Hitler regime. Uh, and one of these units spotted a chap in the distance trying to uh, get away. And it costed him. And it was, fortunately for, for us, it was an intelligence unit that had, had collared him. Uh, and one of our soldiers listened carefully and realised that he recognised the accent. He realised that it was haw haw. Delicious irony. Our officer was a former, was a German Jew who'd fled um, uh, the German repression and, and joined up with us. Uh, less happily for haw haw, um, said Jewish intelligence officer, uh, promptly shot haw haw um, in the bum. 
or rather he shot him through the bum, four injuries in the one buttock, out of that buttock, into the second buttock and out of the other buttock. Uh, he claimed that he thought Haw-Haw was going for a gun. But I suggest, John, that, that, that those injuries take a very high level of precision. You know, they're not life-threatening, but they are humiliating and they make a very, very painful point. Anyway, um, at the end of his life, he was facing trial at the Old Bailey. And Nigel Farndale um, is the um, the author who established properly evidence, not fantasist, established that Haw Haw had pre-war connections to our British Secret Service uh, to MI5, and he did not mention that at his trial. He did not um, have his barrister put it to anyone, despite the fact that such. Uh, evidence might conceivably might I mean, remember you're facing death it might you throw anything at it. it might have saved him from the gallows and it certainly might have meant the government taking a different position perhaps trying to quieten the trial perhaps offering him a, a plea deal uh, whilst we don't call them that formally in the UK you know they might have, have mm -hmm. taken the death penalty off the table if he pleaded guilty or something but I think the reason that he, he did that and again it's not uh, to, to my credit, I think it's it's down to Farndale, but um, his wife was in it up to her neck. She was absolutely as avid pro-Nazi as Hall Hall was, and she'd gone to Germany with him, and she could equally, if she'd been tried alongside him, she could have been executed alongside him. And I think that um, it, it's likely that he did a deal. I won't mention um, my involvement with the Secret Service, and you won't try my wife. Even knowing that what that would mean for his future, if he kept quiet about his past, uh, knowing that he was signing his own death warrants, that's what I think Joyce did. Um, and I, you know, he's a reprehensible human being, but there is something in that that you can't help but admire. Yeah, and another one I liked was, and again, I'm afraid it's another World War II story, but it's about the kind of gray area between rule breaking, which is the excellently named Baron de Longchamp, ah, um, yeah. who was a, a pilot, um, but I'll, I mean, I'll let you tell uh, tell a, a little <coughs> bit about that one. Well, he was a he was related to the king of Belgium, who obviously had a bad war. Uh, you know, if your kingdom gets conquered, and you know, you definitively had a bad war. Um, but he had uh, he had what we used to call a good war. Um, he had served with the Belgian uh, cavalry, you know, tank units, and they were pretty heavy fighting before the um, the, the Franco-German armistice basically wrote out any prospects of the Belgians um, fighting on. And so via Morocco, determined to, to fight uh, for the Allies, he came to the UK, he signed up with our RAF and he distinguished himself as a pilot with us. But he had this burning desire to visit vengeance upon uh, the Nazis because the Germans had killed his father in his, um, in his capital in Brussels. And so he kept pestering his um, superiors to allow him to go on attack run in Brussels. You know, understandably, they said, no, you'll do your missions as assigned. One day he went on one such mission. It was a bombing raid of a, a bridge or something with his colleagues and executed the mission in obedience with his orders. And then he diverged uh, from those orders. He um, flew directly to Brussels, sole fighter attack. He flew down Avenue Louise, um, which is one of the sort of grand old um, avenues in Brussels, uh, which you'll, if you go on the Eurostar, you'll very quickly uh, come on to. Um, and he flew down the Avenue Louise in his fighter and he machine gunned the Gestapo HQ where his father had been murdered. Um, and this is real precision flying, John. Building to the left, untouched. Building to the right, untouched. Building in the middle, utterly wiped out. It kills a whole bunch of, of, of Nazis. 
And as he pulls up and away, la pièce de résistance, he opens up his cockpit. You remember those little flags he used to put on, on the beach in sandcastles? He litters the ground in thousands of uh, flag, a Brit, little um, British and um, Belgian flags, just to you know make sure you know who'd done this. And the, the deed, I think, is tremendous. But in addition to the deed, it was the message to the people of Belgium that uh, resistance was, was still going on and that they had a part in, in that fight. And the message went out across Belgium that this had happened. And it really gave heart, I think, to people as they lived under the Nazi occupation. So um, when he came back to the UK, of course, he got a, a, a good uh, telling off from his officers. But I, I dare say they had a, a gleam in their eye of approval as they did it. I think and what some of the, the stories you've just told, the one about the guy being shot in the bum and the, the machine gunning the Gestapo, what they also highlight is the importance, as you say, of, of precision and, and fine margins. And there are one or two slightly terrifying stories in this where if the margins had gone slightly the other way, things could have gone very, very wrong for humanity. And there's two that really spring to mind. I think they're both from the 80s. Um, one is Stanislav uh, Petrov, Petrov, who was a... Sorry, on the cover. Officer, who's on, yeah, he's, he finally gets his name in lights on the cover of the book. And the other is, you just call, I think you call the chapter Yogi Bear. I'll leave you to explain yeah. that one, but that one well, is... So they're, yeah. they're both stories about the height of our nuclear war and the, um, the, the levels of existential angst that humanity went through at that time. Petrov was, in, was a relatively lowly officer in the bunker with the um, nominal on-shift responsibility for launching Soviet counterattacks were the, the motherland to come under um, attack from the United States. And the whiz-bang new warning system that the Soviets had constructed with satellites told Petrov that there was a missile inbound um, from the USA. His orders were clear, if attacked, launch counter uh, strike, launch everything. That is, commence nuclear holocaust, commence the end of humanity, or at least the huge setting back of humanity, back to the Stone Age. And, and he didn't believe it. He thought the computer was wrong. Why one missile, not many? Why now? Why would the Americans be attacking us? So he disbelieved it and didn't execute on his instructions. The computer second, second time, more missiles are coming. But I still don't believe it. I think the machine is wrong. Now, it turns out that the, the satellites were being misled by the reflection of sunlight off the top of clouds, um, which would be a pretty facile reason for humanity to be wiped out, wouldn't it? But um, the point is that he was um, exceptionally brave in making the decision that he made not to launch a counter-strike. And of course, it turned out relatively quickly that he was correct uh, and that the Americans weren't sort of launching nuclear war upon the Soviets. But the USSR, John, did not think this was the right way for an officer to behave. Your duty and your orders were clear. And despite the fact that you were right, it is not your role, comrade, to second guess the equipment. Your job is to counterattack when you are told that we're under attack. So he shuffled, was shuffled into you know, sideways moves, demotion, mental breakdown, um, ignominy. But nevertheless, he saved humanity. And he's someone whose story really isn't, um, isn't widely told. I mean, I do, of course, point out from a Soviet perspective, what if he'd been wrong? What yes. if he'd been wrong and the Americans were attacking? So there is, a, there is an alternative point of view on this. But nevertheless, he basically saved the world and nobody, um, nobody talks um, about him, really. And the second one is even less well known. Uh, but it is, for some reason, bears have come to play quite a part in the stories that I've, um, I've told. But um, 
in it's on the US side and what happened in uh, the United States when they had a relatively close um, brush with uh, with a false um, alert and launch. And I called it Yogi and the bomb. Um, in this uh, story, uh, 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis period, tensions running very high. Um, in the United States at Duluth in Minnesota, the defense forces were on high alert and a guard who was on duty saw a shadowy figure in the far off security uh, fence uh, climbing over um, uh, the barrier between you know, the external world and the um, command center for radar and nuclear bombers and fighter bombers um, in, in their region. And so this soldier defending his base in his country at the, the height of this time, uh, and by the, by the way, there were lots of warnings about long-term Soviet agents who'd been planted in the US and might seize this time uh, to try and tackle nuclear facilities. They've been issued all these circulars basically to keep you on edge and make you uh, nervous about things. So he saw a threat to his country and he was an intruder and he fires at the intruder in the darkness and sounds the um, alarm. And that alarm sets off an array, a relay of alarms to other um, nuclear facilities around the United States, including Volk Field, which was in neighboring Wisconsin, uh, with their nuclear armed uh, F-106A jets um, who were already ready to go because of the heightened tensions. Now, unfortunately, the alarm system at Voltfield wasn't working. So rather than having been warned of on-site sabotage somewhere else, they got the klaxon, which means nuclear armed interceptor jets take off, you know, commence action. Because um, they were already at DEFCON 3, you know, they thought they were going to go to nuclear war. Needless to say, there wasn't an intruder. It was a bear in the woods. Uh, that was trying to clamber over the security um, guards, uh, the security uh, gate. And um, the commander at Vault Field probably um, saved the day in, um, in thinking to himself, you know what, I'm just going to check with Dulla. I'm just going to give him a call and make sure this isn't a false alarm. He calls them. It is a false alarm. But the planes are already on the runway. So we can't get in touch with them. What are we going to do? So in demonstrating, no matter how many finely honed systems you've got at the end, sometimes you've just got to do it yourself. He and his officers sort of emptied out from the command center and drove onto the runway in their own cars, just drove onto the runway. Stop, stop, stop. Don't go anywhere. So between their phone call, their initiative and um, some flashing headlights, we probably ensured that a bear didn't start nuclear war. Yes. <laughs> It is quite extraordinary. The, the Petrov story you tell as well is also, it reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you've seen the series Chernobyl, where it's kind of yeah. like relatively lowly functionaries who pretty much save the world end up yeah. in ignominy. At great personal cost. Mm. And of course, the guys who, Petrov um, suffered hugely mentally and he was bullied and so forth. It was the end of his career. Many of the people who, who saved the world at Chernobyl by going in and putting on that rotting casket over the top of it, paid with their lives uh, or at least they paid with a sig significant diminution of their lifespan and quality uh, of life because they were being poisoned they had guys up on the roof which was highly irradi irradiated um in, in completely inadequate equipment shoveling off radioactive material so that they could put the uh, the shell over the top of um uh, of the facility and the russians basically sacrificed hundreds of people to make it happen but it was probably necessary in those circumstances so as to ensure deep irradiation of a very wide region uh, didn't take place so so yes that's not one that's not a story i tell in the book but gosh yeah. um what sacrifice they made yeah fortunately someone's bothered to do a six-part uh, 
dramatization of that one already. Yeah, um, quite. You mentioned the kind of the culture war stuff earlier, and history is obviously a big has become a site of contention, not in an academic sense of debating, you know, what happened or why it happened, but as you say, kind of trawling through to try and find villains. I just wonder what you what you think the best approach is to dealing with this kind of quite anti-democratic um, activism, you know, the statue tearing down, the renaming of buildings yeah. and things like this. I think we've got to defend what is in existence at every turn. And um, sometimes that may mean a concession to the so-called retain and explain movement, which at least doesn't see the destruction of the statue or monument or whatever it is that's um, in dispute. But I think that so just to be clear, that's when you kind of put like a plaque on the statue saying, saying this person this, owned slaves or something like that. It, 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 exactly. I mean, I, I think that kind of offence archaeology is in and of itself nonsense as well. But at least if that's the, the path that our current woke generation, which thinks that it's unique in its wisdom and everyone who came before us is some, somewhere on the spectrum of moronic bigot. And all we're trying to do is work out how moronic and how bigoted they were. If that's what our woke generation wants to do, at least the statue will still be there. And future generations, I can hope, uh, will be of sounder mind and say to themselves, well, all right, granddad got wrapped up in this woke agenda, but I'm able to realise people in the context of their time. And I don't think we need this sign. At least they'll still have the statue. I think we're in this dispute now between, not a left-right thing, by the way, plenty of uh, people on the traditional left of politics who are fascinated by history, who believe in um, uh, maintaining and preserving monuments to it, who are patriotic and love the stories from our past and want to to preserve them. It's not a left-right clash. It's a clash between destroyers and preservers. And um, in that fight, I would argue that in answer to your question about what do we do about it, we've got to oppose efforts to remove these things at basically every turn. Unless people think to themselves, well, I, I never noticed the statue in the first place, or this one's a bit iffy, what do I care? What starts with statues doesn't end with statues. They'll come for books, they'll come for place names, they'll come for the television archives, they'll non-person the radio comedian because he told a joke that's now regarded as unacceptable, and therefore you've got to vanish down the memory hole. You know, once you give ground to these people, they just move on to the next thing. So we've got to resist them on every uh, point and every perspective. And the harder point about that, John, I I think, is that it ain't going to be government in the end that does it because government's got too much to do. It's going to be interested parties and people who care about history doing it and advocating the retention of things in basically all circumstances at every example. I think also, I mean, from my personal point of view, I wouldn't want government to be the ones driving what kind of history was taught in schools and things like this. I mean, we mentioned the Soviet Union and Russia, and it's very striking that they're in the kind of, you know, pseudo-democracy. They have, they've developed a thing they call positive history, where they kind of wash over the Great Terror and the purges in the Soviet era. And I'm not sure. suggesting for a moment we're about to have something like that here, but I, ju- I don't know if you share that kind of scepticism about politicians getting too involved with the curriculum and things like this. Well, my first preference would be that um, we leave it up to the teaching profession to determine 
what they I mean I'm very laissez-faire in pretty much all of my politics right so I think that we should assess children for the very basic things at the beginning of an educational program reading writing and arithmetic we should assess them at the end to ensure that they've learned what they should have learned and in the middle I basically let schools get on with it and do what they like I mean this is anathema to the uber controlling civil servants and uh, and bureaucrats of this world who run over what am I going to do if that's what you're going to let schools do but that's basically the approach that I would take Failing that, though, if we do have a curriculum and we do have a prescriptive system, then no, I, I don't actually share your scepticism about politicians being involved in it, because I think that at least we vote for politicians mm. and at least we can therefore voice our displeasure. And ultimately, whilst I regard it as unlikely as a dispute about a point in the history curriculum, someone can be unseated uh, by deed of the democratic mandate that put them there in the first place. Whereas if you don't ask the politicians to do things, you leave it in the hands of this ever growing um, unaccountable bureaucratic state. So at least the polit politicos will be responding to some form, one hopes, of popular will and democratic mandate. And the extension to that, I think, is, is that I think the majority of people in this country don't go along with this woke agenda and don't want to go around smashing stuff up and being the new Puritans and, you know, pulling down um, statues from churches or whatever, you know. I, so I don't think they go with that. I think that um, it would be a reflection of the broad felt but not particularly you know, strongly advocated diffuse majority rather than the very small obsessed head banging minority, which by the way, tends to win in any kind of dispute like this. If government reasserted its desire to, to teach um, a patriotic history that, that was proud of our country, I'm not as skeptical of that as you are. I might not go around calling it um, positive history. And I certainly, <laughs> would, would, I certainly would hope it wouldn't teach untruths Right? Yeah. And that was the biggest issue with the Soviet Union. It wasn't that they told a story that, that was proud of their national heritage, of which there was, there was much to be proud in Russia. Um, it was that they told untruths. And that was the, the issue. So I wouldn't want that in our, um, in our curriculum. And by the way, I'll tell a story about um, uh, one of the, the, the last basic conflicts in the European theatre of the Second World War, which was not between the Allies and the Germans. It was between the Georgians who'd been conscripted into the German army and the Germans and they were on a, an island I used to think it was pronounced Texel but I gather from the Dutch it's pronounced Tessel um, in the West Frisian uh, islands and um, the jo these Georgians have been sort of press ganged into you know they'd either fled the Soviets they'd been taken prisoner um, they were offered the opportunity to serve in the, the Wehrmacht instead of going to a concentration camp well you know what would you choose no real no real choice and when they were finally ordered in the kind of last throw of the dice to go and fight the Allies, instead, overnight, they turned on um, the Germans and knifed them in their beds. Now, it is not a straightforward story. You know, some of these Georgians will have signed up willingly with uh, the, the Germans. Um, and even if that's not the case for the majority, which I think is true, uh, the Germans thought they were their allies. They thought they were their comrades and they'd gone to bed thinking they were there, fighting alongside them. Many of the Germans will have been unwilling conscripts in their teens, knifed to bed by, knifed to their death, bayoneted by big burly Georgians who'd already um, signed up for, for war. So it's not a straightforward story, but the reason I mention it is that it was told in different ways by each participant concerned. The Dutch, who helped the Georgians in the course of this resistance and had had great unease about their own war legacy, held up their activity as a demonstration of resistance to the Germans. 
um, the Soviets manipulated the story and told it as if the Georgians had been prisoners of war and made a feature film about it, which is what made me think about it, the untruths that the Soviets were telling. The Georgians cherished it as a demonstration of fighting against the Nazis, no matter what um, the background uh, might have been. The Canadians, who finally went there to um, to restore peace in this very strange situation and, and, and found Georgians tucked away in um, Dutch civilians' attics and hiding out in, uh, in areas, it had a different uh, perspective. Each side told the story in a different way. One obscure little conflict in an obscure part of Europe right at the close of the war and you can get all manner of different um, perspectives out of it and some of, some of those perspectives were flatly untrue and maintained um, for some time. So I think that's an interesting demonstration of the point you were making. Okay I think that's a really um, apt story to sort of finish up on in the sense that it encompasses that mixture of bravery but also moral ambiguity that cuts across so many of the stories that you tell just finally um there are loads there's almost a hundred stories in the book already but they're all flooding in all the time on twitter and stuff do you think there could be a, a volume two in the works at some point well, well thank you for asking it'll in the end be down to my excellent uh, publisher bite back i think they're happy with the product i think they're happy with uh, the way that it's gone so it'll be in part down to them i mean there have been as you rightly say there have been some more stories uh, told um, after this went to press. So uh, there are some stories on Twitter already that are not yet in, let's call it volume one, of Lessons from History. Uh, indeed, I did a story about the pioneering role of the British Navy um, in the commencement of controlled trials for vaccines, uh, which I timed for World Vaccine Day. Who knew it's a thing and very much more topical now than it would once have been. And that story um, was very well received amongst the hardworking people who've been executing our vaccines programme in the UK. So that and other stories I've written about Eisenhower and, and so forth are the potential seedbed for uh, volume two of Lessons from History. But in the end, it's going to be up to people like your audience and the audiences I've been speaking to to determine whether they, um, they want one or not. All right. Well, Alex, thank you so much um, for joining us. And guys, if you're listening and you haven't got the book yet, the full title to give it is Lessons from History, Hidden Heroes and Villains of the Past and What We Can Learn from Them. So uh, available in all good bookshops or whatever uh, website you get your books from. And uh, Alex, it only remains for me to thank you very much and good luck. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.